Welcome back to the Describe Your World podcast. This is episode 10. I'm Travis, and today I'm with my guest, Brayden. And Brayden just, he knows how to do a lot of stuff. So we have a lot of cool things to talk about. I'm really excited to get to know more about his story and some of the things he has going on. How you feeling, Brayden? I'm feeling pretty good. It's a nice Friday. I got a lot of stuff done today. I feel like I can relax now for a little bit. I feel like you accomplished some things. Uh, yeah, I did a lot of work today. I cleaned a lot today. I ate lunch for the first time today in a couple days. <laughs> oh so goodness. I feel pretty good today. I wish I could do that. I wish that I could just not eat for like four days and then eat like once every few days. I mean, I would lose so much weight so quickly. It would be I nice. usually eat just one big meal a day. Yeah. But today was a special day. I'm going <laughs> to spread it out. Are you uh, are you ready for holidays, Thanksgiving, holiday season? I am physically ready. I'm not mentally ready. I feel like I'm very underprepared for all of them. Thanksgiving, <laughs> I have nothing cooked to take down or no plans to make any food, but I should probably take something. I have no gifts yet for anybody for Christmas. I have not given either one really a second thought. <laughs> They're going to both hit me like a truck when it comes to be last minute, I'm sure. So do you have a uh, family coming in you're going to cook for? Uh, no, I'm going down to my hometown in Lancaster and taking food there. It's only like a 45-minute drive from here, so it's not bad at all. Oh, cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. It'll be fun, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of it will be fun. You have to kind of navigate the... Um the challenges of moving around and entertaining people and cooking and preparing. And then there's fun that gets thrown in the middle of it. Yep. Yeah. That's a better way to put it. <laughs> I'll so probably I, be I, wine drunk with my brother though, halfway through the day. So we'll make the best of it. It'll be fun. So normally the way that I like to start out um, with the podcast is I usually kind of turn it over to my guest. We usually start with early life stuff. So childhood, family, education, any significant experiences that you find that are relevant to who you are as a person, I'm all ears for those. And then I'll probably ask questions and pop in and respond as we go. But I'll let you take over and just kind of share whatever you feel like sharing. Right on. Well, um, I grew up here in Ohio, central Ohio, a little town called Lancaster. It was much smaller back then, I think, when I was born than it is now. It's probably like doubled in size since then. But uh, I grew up out in the country. Kind of out in the middle of nowhere, surrounded mostly by farm fields and woods and neighbors that were a decent walk away. I had like two guys near me that were about my age. So most of the time when I was little, I was playing outside with them, going house to house and wandering around in the woods, doing outdoor cat kind of stuff. Um, I went to school in Lancaster, elementary school, high school, all of it, uh, I was a big chemistry nerd. I was a big science nerd in general, I guess, except for bio or biology. I don't like biology. I think biology is really boring. But chemistry and <laughs> physics were my shit when I was younger. Um, let me think. When I graduated high school, I went to Athens, Ohio, Ohio University. Um, I was roommating with my friend that I've known since third grade, uh, also from Lancaster, and we ended up being roommates through most of college. He lives across the street from me now. My roommate now is still from high school with me. Uh, a lot of people that I grew up with, I think I still, one way or another, 
know and hang out with up here in Columbus, as well as a lot of people that I still met at OU. Um, I was a big drama kid in high school. Hmm. Theater was probably my biggest thing growing up and also after high school. I was a sound and tech guy. Uh, I didn't do much lighting stuff. I fucked with them a little bit, but most of the time I was running the soundboard or putting mics on people and running around backstage trying to get people dressed up in between scene changes and make sure the microphones didn't fall off. Um, I was a stage manager for our local festival in Lancaster, Lancaster Festival, for like eight years. It was seasonal, but it was like eight years in a row, I guess. And that all I didn't do when I was in college. I kind of stopped around that time. I think I did it for like my freshman and sophomore year in college. But in college, I kind of dropped all the theater stuff, minus a couple random classes here and there. And I was a Russian and political science major. So I got a dual degree in those two things. I lived in Moscow for a little bit, like studied abroad. Um, That was fucking sweet. I came home with a really nice love and appreciation for vodka. It's my favorite liquor now. Uh, Graduated OU. When I left Athens, I moved up here to Columbus. And I've been up here ever since, just bouncing around Mostly being a music head up here. That's, I guess, the most recent hobby I kind of picked back up. Like, drama club into <laughs> a Russian and political science and now into music. Those, I guess, have been my biggest hobbies throughout the last decade or so. You know, I, I wouldn't expect anything less, know, knowing who you are, and I'm excited that the listeners and viewers are going to get to know you as well, because I don't know that I've ever met someone who's as diverse as you are. You know, you do technology, you do utilities right away, you do music, you do political science, (laughs) chemistry, video games. I don't know if there's something you don't do. I have a lot of interests. (laughs) It's hard to focus on anyone for a super (laughs) long time because then I get distracted by another one. (laughs) The part that that upsets me the most probably is that you're really good at all of them. (laughs) I appreciate that. Thank you. So, I mean, going back a little bit, growing up in Ohio, you said you, this is what I'm I'm very curious about. So you said you still know a lot of the same people that you knew growing up and even the people you met in college are still fairly close to. So that's, that's kind of a foreign concept for me because I don't know that I know anybody still from my childhood and I know very few people from college. So I'm wondering kind of how you as a person, how you keep those bridges and those ties so closely connected. I think a lot of it is just geographically we've all stayed together sort of coincidentally. And I'm not trying to say that we were all equally close for that entire period of time because we've all had periods of time where we've not been as close and not really hung out as much or we were just doing different things or lived in different places. Like My roommate now, he was in Georgia for a couple years as well as a couple of my other friends that are now back in Ohio because they didn't like Georgia very much. Um, All of my friends from college, most of them liked Columbus anyway and wanted to move here as well as myself. So I think coincidentally, we all just kind of followed the same path. That's one part of it. And the other part of it is just that we are all very close friends, I guess. So we're all a very tight-knit group and value, I guess, the friendship that we've invested into for a long time. And none of us really want to try to lose that and try to start all over again with somebody else. But um, like even now, it's 
crazy to think about because some of my friends that I've known for like five years from college, um, I met them and they would be from like Cleveland or Cincinnati. And now we all literally live in the same neighborhood. Like I can count on two hands the number of friends that live within a five minute walk of me in any direction. <laughs> and we all just kind of conglomerated into the same spot. It's part of the reason I value them so much because they're willing to uh, make that kind of investment, I guess. Have you ever put any like thought into just doing like a content house, you know, just getting 10 or 12 people and buying a huge like mansion and you all just create? <laughs> We've uh, joked about it before. Yeah. And in smaller scales, like some of the people in our friend groups have done that. The friends that moved down to Georgia, that's basically what they did. Um, okay. I think three of them were going to the Savannah College of Art and Design at the time. So they just had a house full of four or five really artsy people <laughs> with not many other friends down there when they first moved down. So they would just hang out and make stuff all the time. Music, yeah. paintings, pastels, all sorts of fun stuff. I would love to do a similar thing up here. My roommate and I have talked about making an art gallery in our basement, but we've both been too lazy to do it. <laughs> we have a very large collection of cardboard boxes in the basement that we want to use as a liner for when we're painting down there, but we haven't gone through the effort of actually flattening them all out, setting them up, sealing it. <laughs> but the idea is there. The motivation will come soon, I hope. What were uh, what were you like as a kid? What was little Braden in Ohio uh, daily life slash weekend slash family life like? Um, well, since I grew up out in the middle of nowhere, I didn't do much stuff in town. Like a lot of my friends at school grew up in like subdivisions in Lancaster. And so they would go out and like play with their friends a lot and go to each other's houses. But I only had like two guys to do that with. So if one of them wasn't outside and another one of them wasn't outside, I would just go on hikes through the woods or I would play on the computer. Um, my dad was an IT manager, so... I had a computer for pretty much all my life growing up because he would do a lot of his work from home. So I would fuck around on there, play Command and Conquer, play Age of Empires, watch over my brother's so shoulder and read his IRC chats when he was hanging out in them. But uh, yeah, those were probably the two biggest things I did. I played basketball. I played soccer also. I used to be a okay. very big sports kid, though I'm not much anymore. Um, I played <laughs> soccer for like nine or ten years, I want to say. I played wow. soccer for a long time. I played basketball for, like, one year. And I don't think I played any others, like, in a league or anything. I used to play a lot of Frisbee golf. Hmm. Played Ultimate Frisbee every Sunday for a couple years with a bunch of random people at a park in Lancaster. Um, Frisbee and Ultimate... Well, Disc Golf and Ultimate Frisbee were two, my two favorites, I think. Soccer is probably the close third. I don't play hmm. it anymore, but I still watch the World Cup like a fiend. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of been my relationship with it as well. I, I played it for one year as a kid, realized that I was really bad at sports. I played basketball for one year, soccer for one year, and was not good at either. But for whatever reason, when the World Cup swings around, I like to keep in touch with it and keep up to date with the games. Yeah. Like that. It's just, there's something there's so about much that. The NBA it. finals, it just kind of works out that way. Yeah, March Madness, I feel about that the same way too. Especially when I have other people around me that get really hyped about it. Like in our office here in Columbus, we um, often do, well, at least we used to pre-COVID, we would have uh, betting brackets printed out and everybody would have their own personal bracket printed off and taped on a big wall. We would all go up and highlight our wins every day. We had like a pool of money that everybody threw 10 or 20 bucks into. It was really fun. 
it was a nice <laughs> random bonding experience that just happened to occur because we were all like, oh, it's March Madness, let's gamble. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I, I kind of infer that you're like super extroverted. Was that the case all the time? Were you always like super bubbly person? Oh, definitely not. No? I okay. think I think not until uh, high school, probably. Okay. Maybe maybe a little bit earlier in junior high, but drama club definitely made me a more extroverted person for sure. <laughs> it's uh, not a stereotype. I don't think that theater kids are bubbly, spunky people because it comes from being on stage and being around people that are on stage all the time. <laughs> that definitely carries up to this day, as well as all my old theater friends. We're all very introverted, but extroverted people. We're all introverts, but we're sociable is what I like to think of it as. And what's your, what's your, um, what's your top skill when it comes to the theater? Are you more of a singer performer? Do you like the comedy of it all? What do you enjoy? I was a sound guy. So running the soundboard was my thing. I was basically live mixing, um, all the singers on stage, the actors, the actresses. And for some shows, we had a very small pit orchestra that we would also have to mix in. And that was really fun. I loved doing that. I became a sound nerd after that. It was so much fun to just sit in the back and play with faders and dials all day. Mm -hmm. And miking people up was also fun sometimes just because you kind of get forced to meet every single person that's on the stage when you're putting a microphone and like looking them straight in the eye. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah, even not being on stage that helped uh, make me a little bit more of an extrovert. I think. Do you, um, what were your parents like? Do you, it sounds like you didn't have any siblings. No, I had a lot of siblings actually. Um, hmm. So I'm the youngest kid in my family. Um, I have one older brother who's 10 years older than me. He also lives here in Columbus. I have one sister who is, I think, 12 years older than me, and she is back in my hometown. And then I have some half-siblings that are out there in other states that I don't really ever get to see, so I'm not really quite sure where they are. But I know of at least three. (laughs) I have two half-sisters and one half-brother out there somewhere. Hmm. It's interesting that you... I guess at least here in Ohio, I had two. It's interesting and you're aware of like the different ties and connections, but you don't necessarily have relationships with them or know them very well. Right. Uh, the most interaction I've had with them, I think, was when I was younger, going to dinner with them once or twice. And I think I've seen their Facebook profiles before. Hmm. <laughs> That's about the extent of it. Yeah, Facebook is good for a lot of things, it's particularly when it comes to like keeping up on people when you don't want them to know you're keeping track of them. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, sounds good. So, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, uh, it sounds like music plays a pretty big role in your story, generally speaking. So as a kid, when did that come in and when, did, what are your, some of your earlier memories of music and, and your fascination with it? Um, I thank my brother mostly for that. He was a very eclectic child. I think all of the kids in my family were pretty eclectic in one way or another. Um, but he definitely had the strange, interesting music taste growing up. He listened to a lot of world music, like Icelandic folk singers and <laughs> like old Gaelic music and stuff. Like, I don't know. His music taste is just all over the place. Indie rock, classic rock, hip hop. Uh, he would listen to pretty much everything. 
And I used to copy his hard drives just to steal all of the music off of it. And then on my own time, he would go back off to college or he would go back into his room if it was when he was still living at home with us or whatever. And I would just listen to all the music on my own time, figure out what I liked, figure out what I didn't like. So I think a lot of my early music tastes were definitely influenced by him and definitely made me a music digger as opposed to somebody that just listens to the radio all the time. Even to this day, like I seek out music. Do you, do you have like, uh, did you listen to like pop radio or top 40 or was it all just world music and beats and sounds? Mostly the latter. I didn't really listen to pop music or radio music unless I was in the car with my family. Hmm. And even then my parents had not usual tastes. Uh, my dad was a big jazz guy. <laughs> cool jazz especially was his thing. So I got really heavy into jazz growing up because of what he would listen to on the way to work and stuff. And my mom mostly listened to Christian rock. Like, uh, uh, I can't even think of any examples. Um, like Skillet and Need to Breathe, Switchfoot. Switchfoot, kind of, but more like gospel rock kind of stuff. Okay, so like, like some Chris Tomlin type stuff? Yeah, more Death stuff like that. Yeah. Not really like rocky stuff, mm-hmm. but more just like singer-songwriter Christian rock kind of stuff. It's the same phenomenon with country music, I think. Because country music today isn't really country music. It's just like a blend of rock and pop and people with twangy accents. And it's kind of the same with quote-unquote gospel rock i guess it's like not really gospel just lyrics that are very spiritual yeah i definitely agree with that there there's a lot of transformation that goes on in genres like that over the years and like even a big noticeable difference between when we were kids and now hearing it is kind of crazy yeah i guess i guess my feeling about music is that i I do pick up new artists and new songs that I like, but just in, you know, not as frequently as I did as a kid or a teenager. When I was younger, I would just look for music 24 seven and find new artists and new songs that I would be into for a while. But now I might pick up three or four songs a year. I just don't have time to go researching it anymore. I feel that a lot of my friends, like, they ask me a lot, how the hell do you have time to listen to all this music that you keep sending to us? And I'm just like, I just don't turn it off. <laughs> if I'm working or if I'm cleaning or if I'm just jamming around the house or whatever, like I pretty much always have music on in the background. Not always paying attention to what's playing, but if I if something catches my ear really hard, I will make the effort to go figure out what it is that's playing at that moment. Keep track of it. The one thing that I do like, I like when things like Spotify have playlists because, or not a playlist, but like a a channel or something like that. Because if I like a band, I can go throw that on and then it'll recommend new stuff that's similar. And most of the time I'll find something I like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think Spotify's algorithm is really pretty solid. Like it's really hard to be disappointed with the discover weeklies or the release radars or whatever on spotify i don't really use it much anymore because a lot of the music i listen to now isn't on spotify but i used to use spotify like religiously i still have an account that i should probably cancel but i like keeping it just in case because sometimes i do find myself on there looking at stuff (laughs) 
I mean, if you if you end up creating, then you need a place to like host and upload your stuff. So better. That's what SoundCloud is for for me. I'm a SoundCloud <laughs> gopher. <laughs> it's so interesting. You're like the ultimate hipster. You like you don't you don't subscribe to anything that all the everybody else is doing. Do I definitely was a hipster when I was in high school for sure. <laughs> My friends and I all were definitely hipsters. <laughs> I grew up listening to like Passion Pit and stuff back in high school and MGMT and Damon Paula. Like, definitely hipster vibes all the way. Did you, uh, did your group in college do the whole Dave Matthews thing where everybody was into Dave Matthews for a while and like went and saw them and things like that? I don't think anybody in my friend group was ever a huge Dave Matthews fan, okay. myself included. I think I had a random Dave Matthews album in my library, and I don't think I listened to it once. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not your not your vibe. Nah, it reminds me too much of the stuff that my mother used to play in the car. I'm just like, uh, I don't want to listen to this. Not enough bass. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I'm spoiled by bass now. It's not hard to go listen to other things, but I don't find myself in the mood to expand out back into other genres as much. I do them on a, or I do on a whim sometimes, but it's mostly like, you know what? I'm feeling like a '90s hip hop day today, and I'll just blast '90s hip hop through the whole day. Or if I'm playing a certain game, I'll play like tavern music for three hours, or <laughs> jazz music if I'm playing like a poker game or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Just whatever is fitting the vibe in that moment. But I don't like go dig for the most recent releases in those genres or new artists to find in those genres or anything. I just put on a random mix. My wife is super into uh, discovering music through TikTok. So she, she watches a lot of TikToks and a lot of the songs she's presented to me or asked me to listen to. She found them from like TikToks and things like that, which is interesting because not that I like TikTok music very much, but it's, it's becoming another you know, tool of TikTok or something else that it does well is just puts new people and new things out in front of you. Yeah, I love and hate TikTok for that exact reason. It, <laughs> it's got such crazy reach. <laughs> I, but at the same time, the content is so fleeting, and I feel like it's making everybody's attention spans that much smaller because of it. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, I've watched a lot of there's a, a content creator that i really like on twitch um his name is uh, alok he's a doctor he's a psychiatrist or a psychologist but he talks a lot about attention span and adhd and how our social media uh, engagements and interactions are really the source of a lot of problems because we get like 15 to 20 second pieces and then you know it kind of makes us a little frantic for more short form content and then you have your people who go down the rabbit hole and are in that stuff for hours and hours and hours. And I've definitely done it for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, just kind of forgot where I was and what I was trying to accomplish. Um, so I understand that that's not going to be good when you have a bunch of 12, 13, 14 year olds who haven't trained their brains to kind of pull away from it. I feel like I have tried to train my brain to pull away from it. And even I myself still do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I have way less of an attention span nowadays than I feel like I did when I was a kid. And I feel like that's probably the reason why all the media that I consume is such short form stuff like that, like bite sized pieces of content. (laughs) 
It's a killer it makes it hard to focus though. on stuff like I used to. Like I used to watch TV shows religiously and be able to binge stuff in a day, and now I feel like I get bored after watching like two or three episodes of the same thing. It's the same reason I don't read books as often as I used to anymore. What are you? What are you currently um, watching? What's something that's got your attention as far as movie or TV? Uh, right now I'm watching Chainsaw Man. Oh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I am uh, definitely into Chainsaw Man right now. Uh, other than that, there's nothing that I'm like watching religiously or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Nothing that I'm super paying attention to. <laughs> yeah, I saw that it was well. So I listened to a podcast called Noodle Shop, and they talked about Chainsaw Man coming out. And um, I was like, "What is Chainsaw Man?" Apparently, it's this super hype anime that's brand new, and it's on Hulu, right? I think that's where I saw it. Uh, I think it's on Hulu. Yeah, I always watch it at my friend's house, so he's the one that puts it on. But I'm pretty sure he's using my Hulu account when we watch it, so that sounds right. <laughs> but I do not know how to find anything that belongs to you if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I like was a big anime fan growing up. Definitely watched that kind of stuff every Saturday morning during the cartoon couple hours that we all got waking up in the morning, yeah. uh, and. I kind of took a long break from anime for a while, and Chainsaw Man is not exactly the kind of style of thing that I used to watch growing up. I used to watch like really weird, artsy movies and Studio Ghibli kind of stuff. That was all my shit growing up, anime-wise. But um, over time, all of my friends who were big Shonen fans, like Dragon Ball Z and Naruto and Demon Slayer kind of fans, uh, they've started to make me appreciate just the more action-y, goofy totally off the wall anime it's like chainsaw man so now we watch it weekly all together as a group and it's awesome yeah i started out so when i was little we didn't have um tv really we had like local channels but we didn't really have tv until i was 14 or 15 and when we finally got tv we had to get dish or satellite tv because they didn't run the cable back you know as far back as we lived so my only options when i first started getting into that thing were like vhs tapes which is how i found pokemon uh dragon ball z Yu-Gi-Oh, some of those like really big ones um, and then I also ran into like the Shonen Jump magazines. They used to sell those in the store. Oh so yeah, those things were awesome. <laughs> yeah, Bleach and um, One Piece, Yu Yu Hakusho, Inuyasha, all of those things that were in publishing the magazine. Um, so in my older age, I've gone back and found all the different anime or animated video and stuff you could watch and kind of caught up on them because I didn't have it as an option as a kid. Yeah, the only stuff that I got to watch as a kid was the stuff that was basically on Fox and the stuff that I got on DVD. And I rented a lot of DVDs as a kid. I was like (laughs) you. I didn't have cable until I was 14 or 15 or so. I think we had basic cable when I was like 12, but it gave us, I don't know, an extra 10 or 12 channels or something like that because there were no cable lines run to our house either. It was like some weird rural co-op that I think has since gone defunct and bankrupt that just <laughs> covered a very small area out in central rural Ohio. And they happened to run to our house. So that was what we got. I had Nickelodeon, but not Cartoon Network. Uh, I had, I think it's like Spike TV. I had FX, I had TLC, like a couple others. I'm jealous of yeah, all my friends that had Cartoon Network growing up because they got the real anime servings all the time when they were kids. And I got what I got on DVD, which was really just whatever 
looked interesting by the cover that I saw at the store at the time. Yeah. No, I, I think my very first memory was uh, my mom buying me like Pokemon on VHS. And I had the had the entire Indigo League on VHS or at least whatever they released of it at the time and watched all of that. And so I was hooked on that and then later on picked up Dragon Ball Z, which just recently I started going back and kind of reliving some of the early Dragon Ball Z seasons and just appreciate it so much more. But again, as much as I like anime, I just don't have time. Like. Chainsaw yeah. Man, all these new ones are coming out. And I'm like, when can I watch this? <laughs> the older ones, too, are such an investment. Dragon Ball Z, Naruto, um, One Piece, like, they are all hundreds of episodes. I think One Piece broke a thousand episodes a couple months ago, or maybe last year. And that's yeah. nutty to me. I can't imagine being the kind of dedicated fan that sits through 1,000 plus episodes of the same show. <laughs> <laughs> that's just crazy. <laughs> Well, the thing about One Piece is, and this is what bugs me, is whenever people recommend One Piece, they say, I need you to just bear with me for like the first 300 episodes. And then it gets really, really good. So my response is like, no, I'm not going to watch 300 episodes if it's not good. Like, just give me the parts that are good and I'll go catch, I'll catch up. Especially now. Like, again, I don't have the attention span that I did when I was a kid and I was really into those things. If I had access maybe to 300 episodes when I was like... 10 or 12, then I probably would have sat and watched them all, but I can't do that now. I have a hard enough time finishing 22 episodes of the same show. Yeah. And uh, similar with Pokemon, like Pokemon's been on for 20, 25 years. So, you know, I, I definitely saw it when I was a kid and I definitely know what's going on with it. And I, I played the games and as it's gotten older, I've gotten older, but it's just, I don't have the ability to, you know, invest in something like one piece something like pokemon or bleach is just too much content yep i think time is uh hard to invest at all in anything nowadays time is the one thing that i always seem to be short on (laughs) well i think your problem too and you know you definitely correct me if I'm wrong, but you just have your hands in so many baskets. <laughs> yeah, too many baskets. A lot of things I want to do, not enough time to do them all. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your uh, your skill and knowledge of technology because there are a lot of things we've talked about personally that I found to be super fascinating. For example, uh, you're really into Smash Bros, which I think is super cool. But we talked about the Smash Bros. Was it like a station that you guys built or set up where you could play like arcade style? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this was at a local brewery that we had here. Um, do you know what a makerspace is? Mm, I don't think so. So it's like um, a building with a bunch of shared craft and construction and other sorts of equipment inside, like uh, table saws, 3D printers, um paint cans and all sorts of other stuff and you essentially pay a membership fee to go in there and have access to all this stuff monthly as long as you bring your own materials to use it so there were the series of warehouse buildings near the airport here in columbus and one of these warehouse buildings had this makerspace in it and across the parking lot from this makerspace was a brewery And a bunch of nerds that worked at the brewery, because the whole brewery was designed around nerdy things like pinball and video games and D&D nights and Hearthstone nights and stuff, Um, they went over to the makerspace next door and they made this gigantic booth that is like a Super Smash Brothers Ultimate booth for the release of the game when it came out. 
And so they set it up inside the brewery, and our coworker Nathaniel and I, we would go there like three days a week, four days a week, every week, and just play Smash <laughs> for hours with all of the employees and random strangers <laughs> who popped in. It was great. I loved that booth. It also made it to the front page of Reddit somewhere. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's in the gaming subreddit somewhere. I might even have a picture of it. We'll have, have to check it out once we get done recording. If you have a picture of it, I can like drop it into the video somewhere. I think that would be really neat. Oh, yeah. I'm sure I have one. So you did you start with Smash whenever it was like on N64, or did you pick it up later? Uh, I didn't have a Nintendo 64 growing up, but my brother-in-law did, and he had Smash. So that was what I started playing on, even though it wasn't my console. <laughs> But yeah, Melee, <clears throat> I got that for the GameCube, because I did have a GameCube. Okay. And I was a, a hardcore Melee player. I didn't play it competitively or anything, because I didn't live around people to really play couch co-op with. But uh, I got pretty good in my bedroom. And carried <laughs> it out of my bedroom when I did have the opportunity to play with people. What is it about Melee? Because I understand that Melee is like the really competitive uh, rendition of Smash. What is it about Melee that people are so drawn to that makes them play it even today? Uh, I think there are two things about Melee. One is that it's really fast. I think it's definitely the fastest of all the Smash games. So your button inputs really matter, and your speed really matters. And the other thing is that there are so many weird little glitches and exploits in Melee that are really tough to do. But if you are able to do them and you're able to do them repetitively and able to do them fast, it makes you a really kind of unbeatable player if you're hmm. playing against the right crowd. Like, uh, it, the meta is so strong in Melee. That's really what it is. Ultimate, the latest one, it's pretty close. It's not quite the same, but it's probably the closest we'll ever get to Melee. I like games with very strong metas like that. Games where you have to really pay attention to the numbers and the math and the frames and all of it. Uh, <laughs> it's the kind of stuff that tickles my brain. Yeah, you said you like chemistry, not bio. It makes total sense because you're a math guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, I kind of felt that way too. I, I was not a big fan of biology. I took bio 101 in college and they said, that's the only one you have to take. And I was like, thank you because I don't want to take another <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I took uh, like... I think an honors bio class in high school. And that was the last I saw of bio yeah. willfully. So actually I took a plant biology <laughs> class in college. Cause I do think plants are pretty cool, but that's about it. That's where so my level of biology stops. I guess the thing about melee that is kind of interesting to me, especially with it being popular, even now people playing is that there aren't patches, you know, there are new characters that are going to be released. You know, you have your game and you have the version that, nintendo provided but that's it so i guess with ultimate it's different because they can nerf characters they can release characters they can patch things add maps to it or whatever um, well that was so. the case but as of now i think they are actually done patching ultimate so they're both <laughs> in the same state at this point they are now done finalized products which is a shame because i think there are some characters that do need to be nerfed or buff and ultimate but that's just my opinion <laughs> what are your um when it comes to ultimate, so do you have like a tier list of like your top five? What are your top five objective best characters, and then your top five subjective best? Uh, I think they're probably the same five. Uh, Isabel would be my number one. 
Zelda would probably be my number two. Pikachu would be my number three. Uh, Cloud would be num- or my number four. And my number five would be probably Corrin. Hmm. Or maybe Duck Hunt, actually. No, actually, <laughs> I forgot Steve is a character now. Definitely number five is Steve. I really love Steve. <laughs> I love my zoning characters and people with projectiles and people that I can just control the map and the environment with. You, you like characters that just annoy everyone else? Yes, absolutely. I am a total <laughs> troll when it comes to Smash. <laughs> My friends hate playing against me for that reason. So what? I mean, I guess that does make sense because they're like anti-meta. Like you have your your zoning and your control players, the ones that are just kind of trolling everyone. But that would be considered like anti-meta. Yeah, pretty much. I uh, have a saying sometimes when I play games, which is break the meta. <laughs> that's how i feel about smash that's how i feel about league of legends that's how i play about any like really numbers heavy game i just like to do things that are fun as a things to think as opposed to things that are objectively good mm-hmm. <laughs> work with what you got and work with what's fun yeah i remember um whenever i was playing as a teenager when i played melee the one thing that i remember is like mewtwo being super broken so I really liked Mewtwo because his ranges, his hitboxes are a little different from other characters. I can't remember what it was, but I, I remember him being like really strong. Yeah, Mewtwo was pretty good in Melee. I think my favorite back then was uh, probably Ness in Melee. He was yeah. so fun. Yeah, Ooh, again, I guess sense, back then, he's also like a, a very projectile character. Yep. <laughs> I like the, play- or the player character. I like not being able to let other players get close to me <laughs> it's like that rick and morty meme stay out of my personal space that's how i yeah. feel when i play smash there are a couple of um i don't know are you familiar with the Yu-Gi-Oh card game yeah i didn't yeah, play so- Yu-Gi-Oh cards growing up but i had a lot of friends that did so the cool thing about Yu-Gi-Oh is Yu-Gi-Oh has a term called floodgate and um, floodgate means that you can't play Yu-Gi-Oh. So I feel like you would really appreciate floodgate cards. Um, there, I can't remember what it was called, but there was a really big one for a few years that they finally put on the limited list. But basically, once you activate it, your opponent can't special summon monsters, which is the whole game at this point. So it's like cards that are, once you trigger them, your opponent just can't play. That's kind of how I equate to your <laughs> yeah. and your uh, projectile characters. Yeah. I didn't play Yu-Gi-Oh, but I did play Magic the Gathering for a while and like control decks. That was what I loved a lot. Just <laughs> stopping people from doing things, reversing spells, canceling spells. <laughs> just as a big fuck you to the other player, essentially. <laughs> How does that tie into uh does that tie into you as a person at all? I hate to be judgmental, but it sounds like if you're a troll in game, you know, you could be a troll in real life. Nope, only in games. <laughs> It's because I'm not a troll in real life that I do it uh, in games. It's my gotcha. my release, I guess you could say. It's the <laughs> one time I can shit talk and actually back it up. <laughs> or even if I don't back it up and I suck, I'm still going to shit talk. Yeah. Yeah, the uh today is an important day if you're listening or viewing, you know, in the future because today is the day that Pokémon Scarlet and Violet were released. Um, which is funny because yesterday is technically the day everybody streamed them. Apparently you can set your Nintendo switch to like an Australian profile and you could just buy anything a full day early. So that's <laughs> what everybody was doing. <laughs> I saw some people doing that on Twitter. 
I didn't realize that's why they were uh, changing their regions. <laughs> and then uh, I think most of the game was leaked on TikTok like a whole week prior, so it really didn't matter. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's, what can you do about uh, leakers, it's, man? It's it's so different from when we were young because when we had our N sixty four and GameCube games, there weren't really there weren't really leaks and there weren't really like data miners and people who kind of spoiled things. The only time right. that I could find out information about a game is when I would buy like a Game Informer or a, um, Nintendo Power, were, Nintendo Power, <laughs> or just one of the guides that you could get from like Walmart or Meyer or something. Yeah, you go in and you can read the IGN all the, like, treasures and collectibles and you read how to beat the bosses and then it's like, oh, it's spoiled. <laughs> yeah, I used to love doing that. And I loved um, old walkthroughs that you could find online too. Like old gaming websites used to actually have writers and contributors that would make full game guides and full walkthroughs. And you don't really get that anymore. Unless you get it in the form of like a YouTube video or something, which I guess people still do, but it's not the same as just sitting down with a book and getting to read it, getting to look at little printed off maps and all sorts of other little goodies that would come inside. I kind of miss that tangible part of gaming that we lost. Well, the thing too about YouTubers I've noticed is like there are walkthrough videos, but they're extremely rare. What you're actually watching are like Let's Play videos. So people will play through the game and they call it a walkthrough but in reality it's not a walkthrough it's just right. them playing through the game and then there's no guide on how to actually beat the game like i like walkthroughs because they're a very neutral experience guide watching it like a let's play or something you're very much getting somebody else's experience of the game a walkthrough is just if you want to get everything this is where it is <laughs> that's pretty much all a walkthrough does it doesn't tell you how to play the game it just tells you where to go when I was younger, there was a creator called Major Slack, and he has a couple channels now, but he didn't have a huge following, very small creator, but he would make quote-unquote real walkthroughs and real guides for games, and he would not, it wouldn't be entertainment. It would be like, all right, here's how you optimally beat the next room. Here's how you optimally beat the next boss. I used to love to watch it. It was just so informative, and I really understood how to play the game in a, a really good way uh, from the walkthrough. Mm-hmm. I grew up playing a lot of RPGs, like Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger, JRPGs for the most part, a couple of like the Tales Saga games, and walkthroughs were kind of necessary for some of those, just because there was so much content. If you're playing on a PS1 and you have like a 40-60 hour game and not a lot of people who have posted much about it on the internet, you gotta go to get some printed resources at that point. <laughs> it's like doing yeah. old library research, except you're doing it as a little nerdy kid trying to finish a game i kind of want to i kind of want to do something like that one day where like i want to create a legitimate walkthrough of a game that i really love like bioshock or borderlands and do like a legit walkthrough step by step you know here's how you collect these items here's how you beat this boss i just think even if no one watched it i would be super proud of it i mean honestly yeah i feel like that would be a hell of a time commitment it's a hell of a time commitment sometimes just to play a game normally, much less <laughs> trying to do it in a perfectionist way and figure out how to explain it to somebody else. And those you gotta RPGs, have some good writing skills for that, for sure. And those RPGs, too, are really hard because I love RPGs, and that's what I used to play as well. Games that were like 200-hour commitment games. Yep. Just knowing that now I can never play a 200-hour game. I need like a five, six-hour game if I'm going to play at all. 
<laughs> yeah. It frustrates me because I struggle that's the kind with of that game nowadays. Like, I loved, loved, loved RPGs growing up as a kid, and now it's rare that I get to play one. Um, I'm trying to play through God of War right now, and that is a hardcore commitment. And I'm playing on the hardest difficulty, too, because I'm a masochist, I guess. And so I'm <laughs> adding, I'm sure, many tens of hours of playtime just from failing and having to restart. But uh, I'm trying to trudge my way through it and make it the first like 60 plus hour game that i've eaten in a while that's not just a pick up and put down thing every 15 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour i can't count how many hours i've sunk into something like genshin impact or league of legends because those are very easy to pick up and put down i think my rocket league hour count is like 600 hours or something like that it's kind of obnoxious But again, I love Rocket League. I love watching good Rocket League players. I love watching good Rocket League players too. I wish I was one, but I'm not. (laughs) I just I like seeing like all the uh, skill shots where you have to have like the perfect angle to shoot a goal, and I'm like, oh, that's disgusting. But I love watching it. Yep. Yeah, insane, crazy good Rocket League players or something else. It's another thing that's like Smash. It's one of those games that's really easy to play and easy to learn, but really hard to master. I, that's that's the name of the games that I play, I guess, most of the time. I like things that are easy to learn, hard to master. Do you have a specific gaming achievement, like maybe an actual achievement or, or something that you consider to be an achievement that you're really proud of? Um, I don't think I have any one in particular. Uh, however, I do think at some point in my life, I'm going to get all 999 Korok seeds in Breath of the Wild, and I'm going to get the lucky <laughs> golden poo-poo, and that will probably be the crowning achievement of my gaming <laughs> career when I make it happen. I need to get I, to that on, point first, though. On one of our previous episodes, we were talking about Nintendo, and we kind of went through um, Legend of Zelda a little bit, and so I my challenge to him was you know, rank the definitive top three Zelda games. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, Ocarina was in there for sure. And then Breath of the Wild was in there. And then he picked something that was kind of off the wall, like Wind Waker or something. And I was like, if you don't put Twilight Princess in the top three, there's a problem and I'm going to fight you. (laughs) Wind Waker is my favorite. I don't think it's objectively the best one, but it is my favorite. It was so out there and different and exploratory. That's what I loved about it. Plus, the art style of Wind Waker was so good. Yeah, I love cel-shaded games, and I think that game is really what put me onto them at first. It's an art style that I don't think I really appreciated prior. Except maybe Jet Set Radio, I would count that, I guess, as also being a nice early cel-shaded art masterpiece. Yeah, we we talked a little bit about um, the differences between games like Spirit Tracks and Wind Waker and how... The cell shaded Zelda games were really strong titles that kind of uh, kind of get underappreciated whenever people rank them because story and gameplay are really cool, but just because of the way it looks, you know, people don't put them up at the top. Yeah, and I mean, Wind Waker also has a lot of hate for uh, long gaps in the storyline and doing things like collecting all the Triforce pieces, where you have to just spend hours and hours traversing the map just to do tiny little tasks here and there. It's, well, I think that's a valid criticism. I, it's also why I loved the game, because it was so easy to just sit down on the couch and feel like I was a pirate on the open seas, just exploring the open ocean. You know, <laughs> you go get a glass of water while you're sailing forward, come back, hop back in your boat, <laughs> keep on going until you find the next island. There was something that felt really organic about it. 
One of the big uh, complaints when it comes to, and kind of the backtracking a little bit, but with Pokemon Sun and Moon, one of the big complaints that people hate it, hate it for is because there's like a two-hour tutorial at the beginning of the game. And I, I'm always like, man, the games that we played growing up, two hours was like nothing. You know, Final Fantasy games, you've got like a six or seven-hour tutorial. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> Like the whole first disc of Final Fantasy VII is essentially a big long tutorial. God damn, <laughs> they really so were. Like, it's it's part of that thing we were discussing with uh, ADHD and not being able to hold someone's attention. Like they want they want their starter Pokemon, they want their Pokeballs, and then just take off. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it feels almost forced upon me by all the media that I enjoy consuming. <laughs> so i want to transition a little bit into computer specifically because one thing that we have in common uh one of the things that i'm good at that you're also good at i'm not very good at many things you're good at but one of the things that we both do is gis um, and so for those listening or watching gis is kind of like uh, mobile and online mapping tools so basically we get to create uh, maps and gather data do research and sort of depict our findings in like a digital format uh, graphically on computers and on phones and things like that. So uh, just curious kind of how you discovered it and where you picked it up and what kind of spurred your interest into it. Uh, GIS is something that I picked up totally randomly, actually. Um, well, I guess not totally randomly. Uh, at least occupationally, it was pretty random. Um, I've always been a, na- or a map nerd all my life. Like, when I was little, I used to like getting um, atlases every year as a present for Christmas from my parents. I still have some upstairs, like, really nice big atlases. I always wanted one of those world maps that you would see in classrooms, like the big rollout ones that are, like, 8 or 10 feet long. I craved one of those growing up, but I never got one, and I'm still kind of sad about that to this day. Uh, But I do still have, like, a big collection of old maps that I used to collect from just various places like um, National Geographic magazines or uh, class promotional materials that I would get at school, that kind of stuff. And some of them are still really interesting. So like our guest bedroom upstairs right now is just a map room. It's a bunch Mm. of different maps of different things. We have like the earth at night. We have a Mars map. We have a USA national parks map up there, I think, and a couple other things. So maps are not new to me, but doing GIS work is because it's not something that I went to college for. It's not something that I really knew anything about until I just got the opportunity to start playing in Google Earth a lot at our job. (laughs) I realized that I liked that a lot. And so I started just kind of doing that as a really niche part of my role. And then eventually... I guess as of last week, actually, my title is officially a GIS person as opposed to a record specialist. <laughs> yeah, I do enjoy it a lot, though. Like it's um, it's a very nerdy little niche thing, and I <laughs> it does tickle my brain in the same way that like video games do. Almost, I like being whenever, able to look at stuff. Drop whenever it. I first met uh, Eric, who was one of our coworkers, um, you know, he told me he studied. GIS, like, uh, in, as far as like his education, I was like, first of all, what's GIS? And second of all, why would you study it? And so since then, I've met a couple of other people who said they wanted to pursue GIS, like as far as college. 
And so I guess it's a field that's kind of getting a little bit of attention and expanding and, and yeah. being fleshed out like for sure level or federal level, but um, it's not something I would have expected. Like I had a friend in high school who went to college for environmental sciences and he was going to be like a conservationist or an ecologist or something along those lines. And I think he studied plant biology too. And now he works in GIS and he does like, uh, well, at least he's starting to do like utility stuff, essentially what we do just on a more database kind of side. And that just kind of blew my mind a little bit when he told me not long ago, cause I was like, that's really weird. I do almost the same thing. <laughs> Small world, I guess. And I didn't realize it was getting that much smaller for GIS. Maybe that's just a coincidence too. And it's just anecdotal bias, but I do think it's a growing field for sure. And something that's in a strangely high demand in a lot of places and things that you wouldn't really expect to utilize GIS in any way actually do in some way, shape or form. That's what kind of blows my mind. Like a lot of things that I don't, typically think about mm-hmm. like my brother works for the state library here in ohio and i guess even they used ArcGIS for a little while to map out like uh like maps of like heat maps raster maps of um like where books were being ordered and rented out the most so that they could see like the book distribution going out through the city and whatnot and i was like that's a really cool use i never even would have thought to do that but yeah just like a weird little example. And I feel like that's all over the place with GIS. There are so many niche little uses for it that are just sitting there waiting for somebody to have that little light go off in their brain where they can be like, Oh, I bet this would be nice to look at on a map. Yeah. It's, it's something that um, it's very diverse and it's, it's very versatile when it comes to its application, which I don't know that a lot of people would expect because you think we create maps. Well, there are a lot of things you could do with a map. You can track a lot of different, um, you know, environmental things. You can track a lot of uh, federal kind of things, governmental kind of things like ownership and property stuff. Um, and it, it's, it's. I think it's going to find a lot of usage in a lot of places that, you know, might not be uh, in use right now because I think people will find ways to use it. And when you have a visual representation of data and it's engaging and interactive and it's, um, you know, readily available on a phone or on a tablet, you know, people are going to be drawn to it and want to find ways to use it. Right. Like, um, so when I was in college, one of the reasons that I liked political science in Russia, um, I wanted to get into conflict mediation kind of, and like working in war zones kind of deal. And even while I was in college, I guess there was like a little part of me that was like, a lot of this stuff is really studied on maps through like drones and whatnot. And like we use open source intelligence from satellite imagery to study a lot of this stuff and see where things are happening and where people are moving and what the effects of stuff are. And like, it's, it's crazy just how much info you can gather from looking at something from the sky and knowing where things are, how valuable that data can be in ways that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Just being able to plot it all, I think, is a really cool skill. Definitely far more interesting than I thought it would be when I started doing it for a job. Like I'm then- going to be lucky to say that I enjoy my job. I know a lot of people can't say that, but <laughs> I feel like I can say that. Well, not only that, but in order to run the software that we use, you have to have a pretty nice computer setup. So, like, obviously, you love building computers and upgrading them and 
you've mentioned to me on more than one occasion your desire for these crazy expensive GPUs that I could only dream of having. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, for me, it's just a dream too, but the desire is there. <laughs> I'm a hardware nut. I'm not as much of a software guy, but I love hardware. I think hardware is so cool. Yeah. The way computers work is really mind-blowing. Yeah, I'm the opposite. I like software. I, I built computers, and I understand how to build them and how to like plan to build them and things like that, but um, I don't care that much about pulling a, you know, a tower apart and identifying all the pieces <laughs> and upgrading them. That's not me. <laughs> I really like even the more nitty gritty hardware stuff, like voltage regulator modules and bus speeds and whatnot. Like really learning why all the hardware looks the way that it does and why it plugs into each other the way that it does. Like, I think it's all just really fucking fascinating. Computers are so cool. <laughs> That's like one thing I can say that I definitely have had a very solid hobby in since I was a kid. That's the one consistent hobby, I guess I can say I've had since I was a kid is computers for sure. When did you uh, build your first computer? Do you remember? Uh, not my computer, but I used to help my dad build computers when uh, I was living back in Lancaster with him when I was a kid. Cause <laughs> Again, he was an IT manager, so he would have to build, like, employee computers and sometimes would just do it back at home, bring home hardware. Or I would find old stuff out in the garage that he wasn't using for anything, and I would just start tinkering and plugging things into each other and managed to build, like, most of a computer before I didn't know how any of the wires actually worked. I could figure out how all the plugs worked, at least. <laughs> Not, like, <laughs> a hard drive went into the slot kind of deal. But, uh... My first, like, personal computer that was mine, I didn't build until I was, like, I want to say, like, 14, 15, something like that. And that was still partially a pre-built. It was more like a pre-built that I swapped out a bunch of stuff in. But it was awesome. <laughs> I love that thing. I still have the tower somewhere. It sounds like the way that I uh, I do my computers. I'll I'll buy something that's fairly upgraded, and then I'll just try to swap out two parts just to make it a little bit faster um, and then i'll kind of leave the rest behind and not worry about it that's the way to do it like <laughs> you don't necessarily have to redo the whole system every single time i think that's a very bad way to go about it like the whole reason <laughs> i have a pc and i'm not a console gamer or something is because it's really easy to just do everything in a modular way and upgrade piece by piece like modular is the way to go. If I have to rebuild an entire PC every time, I would be broke, I think. Does it make a lot of sense for gamers now to kind of operate entirely off of PCs just because you can you can do all your streaming, you can upgrade your PC whenever you need like a better processor and everything instead of just waiting for a new console? I'm a firm believer in that, yes. I mean, there's the hashtag PC Master Race meme. I'm one of those people for sure. <laughs> I tried to talk my friend out of getting a PS5 not long ago, but uh, he ended up getting a PS5 because he had a wedding recently, and that was like his gift to himself. But um, okay. yeah, firmly, I am a PC guy for life, I think. Except Nintendo, because there's no other way to play Nintendo games except getting a Nintendo console. So there's not much I can do about that. Yeah, and the the cool thing about Nintendo too is like the one uh, the one sort of downside to playing Nintendo is the graphics. So it doesn't really make sense to play it on PC anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. 
Like, you can emulate Nintendo games, too, for sure, but it's not quite the same, especially when they're always innovative with their controls and their hardware and whatnot. Like, I'd rather just play a Nintendo game on a Nintendo console and call it a day. So, yeah. I, like, I had a, or I had a Wii. I have a Switch now. I skipped the Wii U, but, <laughs> yeah, I'll always be a Nintendo fanboy, for sure. I have my and NES the- one when I was growing up back at home, and I'm really excited to try to pick that up on Thanksgiving and play with my old Zapper, even though I don't have a CRT monitor to use it with. I just want to see what I can do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I might, like, paint it and hang it up or something as an accessory on the wall. I still uh, I still have a Wii just for GameCube games, and then I have a Switch, but they don't get much use. But I always know that if I want to pick up Zelda, like an old GameCube title, I have it available. And then I have an Xbox, but only because I use it for Blu-rays and 4K. So, the thing is, you can do all that with a PC too. <laughs> and that's I know. that's I know. how I always <laughs> explain it to my friends when I'm like, "Don't get the next console; just build a PC instead." <laughs> yeah, and it's it's tricky too because my office setup you can't really see it very well right now for people who are watching. But I have like an L-shaped desk. And I have my like personal computer, or it's a laptop, so it sits on top. But then I have my work desktop under the desk, and then I have like monitors everywhere. So there's really not room for me to add like another desktop PC. It's like at this point, I'd have to just kind of merge everything. I feel that my uh, setup isn't exactly spacious over here. <laughs> I have a very <laughs> large tower for my PC, and my work PC is kind of nudged in the back behind my speaker monitor tower over here. <laughs> I have um, about half of the actual available leg space underneath this desk um, really available to me. (laughs) The other half is my computer tower. (laughs) Uh, Is there anything else that you wanted to kind of go over? I I wanted to save a little bit of time for a specific segment, but if there's anything else that you wanted to hit on, you know, just kind of an interest, hobbies, life story, that kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Nah, let's, let's let's just keep going. Okay, transitioning. <laughs> so I wanted to carve out a little bit of time here uh, toward the end of the conversation to talk about something that I I find fascinating, and I feel like you have a lot of uh, a lot of experience kind of dabbling with, which is investing. So, and when I say investing, I don't mean specifically stock market stuff, but I'm more than happy for you to go into that if you want to provide financial advice to our wonderful community. Um, but I'm more talking about like collectibles, hobby stuff, card games, um, any kind of any kind of thing that's all of a sudden gained value that once didn't have value. I think it's super fascinating. Well, I is there anything that you collect advice. right Because <laughs> most of the time I lose money, not make money. So I'm a bad person to take financial advice. From. But I do agree, <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, there's nothing that I collect now that I think is of value except. Um, Except music. I collect music, but that's not really like a collectible item. Um, I used to collect Pokemon cards. I still have a big binder of them somewhere back at home. Uh, I had probably a good thousand or so Pokemon cards that I had collected over the course of my entire childhood, pretty much. I also had a big baseball card collection. I can't tell you a single name of a single baseball player that was in it. I can't tell you what any of them looked like, but apparently I had hundreds because my mom was telling me about them not long ago. Um, So the uh, 50 state coins, I think I used to collect those too until they started doing all the stuff 
besides the first 50 states, they started doing like U.S. territories and I think landmarks and stuff too, maybe on the quarters. But uh, I only collected the first 50 states in a little book that I had when I was younger. Nowadays, I don't collect anything, <laughs> even though I probably should. I feel like I would make more money collecting tangible things right now than I ever do digitally. <laughs> Although, I think NFTs, I could maybe co or combine my uh, music collection with NFTs, maybe, and just start buying music NFTs. But that's about the only thing I would consider collecting. <laughs> I feel like you should design an NFT. <laughs> oh, God, no. I am not an artist, by any means. I didn't grow up an artist. I do not have artistic talent like that. <laughs> <laughs> I have I, friends I, that are artists. I was sort of raised to be a collector. My dad and I did a lot of collecting when I was little. I We did like trading cards. Um, we actually liked a lot of the little uh, collectible toys. Like when it came to anime, there would be dolls and, and models that you could collect. And so I just sort of developed an, a niche kind of passion for it. Um, and so now I'm a hoarder. So my, my collecting <laughs> hobby has turned into a really bad like personality trait. You definitely seem to have a variety on the bookshelf behind you, which I like. <laughs> I think I yeah. recognize one of them, actually. Is one of those Pokeballs the one that has the little golden uh, card inside from, what was it, McDonald's back in the day that you had to pay money to? <laughs> yeah, it's, that's the Burger King um, Pokemon, like... I guess it was like Burger King Happy Meal toy, but basically there were several of them and you could get a little golden character and then you got a little Pokeball. Yeah. I used to have one of those and I think I had a, <laughs> I think I had a Charizard inside. I can't even remember what it was. I love that thing though. Pokemon is probably the only I guess media for which I've collected knickknacks besides cards, really. Because mm. I did collect a lot of those weird little offshoot random things like that, too. My brother was a big Lord of the Rings guy, so he had a lot of um, old figurines and stuff. I think he still has them somewhere, probably still in their box, even. I think he had um, Harry Potter wands that he used to collect. I guess I used to collect swords, but those were mostly from pawn shops and antique malls and the like. They weren't anything that I was trying to store for value or see what happened to them down the line. I just liked swords. But I, yeah, I, I didn't definitely carry any one I, of those. <laughs> it definitely like really entertains me when I see an auction. And so your 1998 Pokemon card, your three by five piece of cardboard sells for like $400,000. <laughs> and then I, I, it really intrigues me because I'm like, how did we get here? You know, yeah, right. Spend this much money on a Pokemon card. What gets me is that we're at the point where people don't even play the Pokemon card game really anymore. I mean, people do. We had Pokemon championships here in Columbus. I think like the year before COVID, actually, at our convention center. But uh, I mean, that's a small thing compared to what it used to be when we were kids. And so people aren't collecting these cards for the value of playing with them anymore. They're collecting them strictly for the value of what other people now think they are worth. <laughs> it's pretty much a hype train for Pokemon. And I think that's wild. They don't well, have the same practical use that they used to. I think that whenever you have people that are our age that are in their 20s or 30s and they see something that is nostalgic for them that they grew up with when they were little kids and they really cared about, you know, it makes sense that you'd spend a little more money to acquire those items that had a lot of value when you were little. But whenever one of those people was like the rapper logic and he has hundreds of thousands of dollars to burn on something like that, 
<laughs> just have a problem. It's yeah. just like capitalism takes its role and we just have a problem. Yeah, you're right, though. Nostalgia is certainly a part of it, too. Like I understand people that want to collect things and hold on to them strictly for the sentimental purpose, I guess. I have friends <laughs> that collect Amiibos for that reason, just because they get to see all of their favorite little Nintendo characters displayed on a case. It's, mm-hmm. it's nothing value-related. It's just they like looking at their Amiibos on a shelf. That's a perfectly fine reason, I guess, to collect stuff, too. You don't have to collect things for the practical reason or for value per se. Yeah. Sometimes the decoration and sentimental value is all you need. (laughs) One of the things that my dad kind of instilled in me when I was little was that if you collect something, make sure you buy something that you like, because that way, if it has no value later, at least you still like it and you still look at it and tinker with it. That's why I'm a little bit sad about those baseball cards. I wish that they were like Magic the Gathering cards or something that I collected when I was younger because I don't have any interest in baseball cards right now as, or as an adult. I don't have any mm-hmm. interest in baseball. <laughs> so what am I going to do with these things other than just try to figure <laughs> out how to get rid of them? My Pokemon there, cards, on the other hand, I'm excited to have those back. There is, um, I did a little research before we started talking because I wanted to have like actual figures and stats in mind for some of these items. There is a Magic the Gathering card I think it's called Black Lotus, and it's like one of the older cards that went at auction for like a hundred grand or something. Counts. That's nuts. That's but so I, I don't nuts. know anything about the card or the game at all. I just know that it's a really you know valuable item. I don't know anything about the particular card, but Magic has a really crazy in depth meta, so it wouldn't <laughs> surprise me at all if it was a way overpowered card or just something that was produced in a very small batch. Yeah. Like, Magic has a ton of cards, too. Their deck sizes are huge. I don't know how many they have relative to something like Pokemon, but it is a lot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mag- I do love Magic, though. Magic is sweet. I don't <laughs> think I'd ever pay $100,000 for the card, even if I did love it that much sentimentally, but uh, <laughs> Magic is a great game. It, it frustrates me a little bit because there's a part of me that wants to go back like a blue eyes white dragon card that I owned when I was a kid. Cause I got rid of my Yu-Gi-Oh collection when I was like 15, 16 years old, but now I can't buy it because now if I want the blue eyes white dragon card, I got to spend like a grand on it. When, yep. when I was a kid, I could get it in a $10 structure deck. Like just give me yeah. that back. <laughs> I remember it too. The, short period of time when you could still get a blue eyes white dragon for like a hundred bucks because they were starting to be in high demand but they weren't really back then and they weren't super rare back then and yeah now it's it's crazy i feel like part of that too is nostalgia though i feel like back then it was just rarity and people wanted the card to actually play with in the game and now it's like oh the legendary blue eyes white dragon i want that card (laughs) <laughs> Even though I'm not going to ever play Yu-Gi-Oh! again in my life. It's the it's the status, the symbol of a Blue-Eyes White Dragon now. And you, I don't know if you know the lore behind the character from the show itself, but in the show there were only four of them. So that was a very rare card, you know, as far as a character is concerned. Right. I didn't watch the show much. I only watched it here and there, but I know at least a little bit about Blue-Eyes White Dragon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I... Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic and Pokemon, are, and uh, there are a couple of others that are a little bit smaller too, but any kind of trading card game now, it's like, if it's not a brand new game, you can't really become a player, because in order to build like a competitive Yu-Gi-Oh! deck, you gotta spend like six or seven hundred bucks. Yup. Magic is very much the same way. I 
don't think you could build a really good magic. I mean, you could probably build a starter deck for like 150 bucks or something like that. But if you want to build like a really good deck and you want to really get into it, you're probably going to shell out three to six hundred bucks. I have friends who had about that many dollars worth in their collection, maybe even more. And it was a lot of cards, but it was also just a lot of separate decks. Each deck is not that particularly big relative to the whole. Mm. On a deck level, they were all still pretty damn expensive. Same thing is true for uh, video games. I don't know if you're super familiar with like the video game meta as a collector, but you know now whenever you go buy a game, it's like sixty bucks if it's a new game. But now people are taking the new game, sending it to a company that will grade the game and put it in a case that you can't take it out of, hoping that fifteen years down the road it's worth like several thousand dollars. So like it's almost not worth playing a new game. It's almost better to just keep it sealed and not open it. <laughs> or you buy a physical copy and then you buy a digital copy to actually play. Yeah. <laughs> I don't buy physical shelf. copies anymore. Um, I have one friend, I think, that still buys physical copies of games. And it's because he likes to have them on a little shelf where he can look at them like a little bookcase. <laughs> but uh, I don't like physical copies because I feel like they degrade over time or I lose them or they break or I borrow them and don't get them back, that kind of deal. So my entire collection now is digital, which is a shame because as a collector, it's not quite the same as having like a physical disc or a case that you can put on display somewhere and still have and take out and play on the original console one day if you really wanted to. Mm-hmm. I have a bunch of old NES games that would be sweet to play nowadays if they were actually still factory sealed, but they are all things that I picked up used or pawn shops and whatever. They're old dusty cases, old worn out PCBs inside. So I don't even know if they would still work, but I would love to try and play them again. <laughs> yeah. And there's when it comes to grading, so there are a couple of different grading companies you can go with when it comes to grading games. There's VGA and there may be maybe one other one that are sort of like the big two for grading video games. But there are so many different categories they can put your game into. So there's like sealed, there's like certain uh, box variants you can get, there's like an open box, there's like a resealed box. And so not only if you go online to buy these as a collector, you have to be super careful about reading the description and the titles. But also, kind of like with trading cards, it makes the value go up like 10 or 20 times if it's like right. original, sealed, like no, the original version printing. That's crazy. <laughs> I never thought about that being a service, but I guess it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. There's money to be made there, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Now, nowadays, 2022 and coming into 2023 is the day and age of grading stuff. Like, don't do anything with anything. Send it to a company and put it in a case. <laughs> yep. Is that what you do with your Funko Pops? No, I assume that people grade Funko Pops. I know that people will get them autographed and then they'll send them to PSA to get them certified. I've seen that before. Um, actually, I got my wife in, uh, a Hamilton Pop uh, like last year for Christmas. I got her a Hamilton Pop nice. that's autographed by the guy who created the play and PSA certified it. So we have one. That's nice. I didn't think about that as a use case, but autographed stuff being graded is a, a pretty neat idea actually yeah you could do that with just about anything i feel if you got an autograph yeah and autographs are extremely valuable when it comes to trading cards sports cards just memorabilia fungo pops yeah anything that you can get signed and and like if somebody can tell you that it's a legitimate autograph and get like a certificate of authenticity that just increases the value dramatically yeah i used to have um 
posters from some of the early concerts I went to when I was still an indie rock kid. I would manage to get the bands to sign my posters. I was so proud of those things for so long, and now I couldn't even tell you where they are, unfortunately. <laughs> I have a couple. I have I had a couple of Switchfoot posters that are autographed. I've got um, a couple of really small like content creator bands that I met and had them autographed, but um, it's kind of hard to get that done. You I mean you have to pay a lot of money for a VIP ticket anyway. Yeah, I think I had um, the Plain White Tees was the first one I got. And I was so ecstatic <laughs> because it was a selfie that also had me in it. May <laughs> signed it for me. It was awesome. It was like a little Polaroid photo with all their signatures. How did you? Oh, okay. So it's Polaroid. So you took it and then they signed it right after. Yep. There, there was somebody else that took the photo that had a Polaroid. It was just convenient timing. <laughs> but yeah i was uh i was a stoked little like 12 or 14 year old kid i wonder if you being in the photo like increases or decreases the value i guess since it has their autograph it doesn't matter if, i would say it probably decreases it i mean if you have the <laughs> option to get like a show poster or flyer versus like a selfie with some random kid or not a selfie but like a photo with some random kid and the band members in it you're gonna go for the show flyer every time <laughs> Unless somebody just really wanted to see my face that much on their wall. <laughs> but I wouldn't hey, count on it. Sometimes when we go to antique malls and uh, um, thrift places, thrift malls, I like the, to look at the old postcards and pictures and frames that have old people's pictures in them. And I don't yeah. like people. I do like those a lot, actually. I want to have a bunch of those in my house. <laughs> yeah, just like a photo album of old people's memories that aren't yours. <laughs> that's essentially what it is that's kind of what i want i want just a whole room with just a bunch of faces and i don't know any of them we had um a big antique mall in the hometown that i grew up in that was like three stories tall in this big building on the highway that ran right through the middle of town and they had all these vendors inside that mostly weren't there there was just one desk at the very front and the whole place was essentially just a gigantic like exhibit almost that you could walk through and just pick stuff up and look at it everything was kind of like furnished in a way i guess you could say but uh there were all these sections that had kind of like what you were describing old postcards but they were like old photographs from people's albums from like the 30s and 40s and 50s and they would have little family notes and dates and names and stuff on the back of them locations and what they were doing like, I have no connection to their story, but there is a weird vintage aesthetic to it <laughs> that I really love. It's kind of a weird Art Nouveau in 2022 now that it's so out of place, I guess, at this point in time. Well, I remember I remember taking a sociology class in college, and one of the things that our professor was really enthusiastic about was pulling up uh, pictures that people or families would take with their dead babies. Like whenever children died, like really early life, and they would take a photo to commemorate the child before they buried it. And he was super into that. And I was like, there's something appealing <laughs> about that. I mean, I don't want it to be appealing, but there is something appealing. Yeah, like it's one of those weird niche, like you can make a collection out of that kind of deals. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what makes it kind of fascinating. I like weird collections like that. Those are also the ones that people don't necessarily collect large scale, though. Those are the ones where you just find somebody that has a really out there interest, and they're like, I'm going to get all these. <laughs> Everything that I can find related to this. I'm sure that together, my wife and I would really love to have a room with just all kind of strange, macabre, like dark 
pictures and posters and haunted artifacts because we love horror movies. So I like that. Related to horror, we would love to collect. Again, like that's a very cohesive aesthetic that you could run with in a room and something that you could forge together a cool collection from out of all sorts of different things. Things that aren't even supposed to be terrifying or horrifying. I'm sure if you put them in the right context in the right room surrounded by other stuff, they'll become horrifying. (laughs) So, I mean, I have to say as a disclaimer that, you know, nothing that you hear on the podcast should you use for financial advice because we're not financial advisors. This is just sort of a for fun kind of topic. (laughs) What would you say to someone now who's like, all right, I've got a little extra money. I have a career. I want to start investing in something. What would you say they should invest in? Um, I'd say commodities, like uh, very much material goods. I was a big steel guy for a while, and steel was a very fun ride during the pandemic because it was shooting through the roof to record prices. That was some very mm-hmm. lucky timing I had on that. But through trading in steel for a while, I think the commodities market is really, really interesting. And it moves at a totally different pace than what people are traditionally talking about investing in. It's not the tech market. It's not the retail market. It's not the services industry. It's not the financial industry. It's all based on just material goods moving around. So price fluctuations tend to be a lot more slow. Uh, Demand cycles tend to be much wider or longer, I guess. And it's just like a totally different pace to investing than I guess like the big 100 that you would typically see people wanting to throw money in on the stock market. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot of research, honestly, and knowing the companies that you're investing in and kind of knowing what assets they're getting and where they're based and whatnot. But, uh, Doing that research, I think, is kind of fulfilling in its own right, because you end up learning a lot of weird little things about places that you never would have thought about before otherwise, and <laughs> like parts of the economy that you never would have otherwise thought about. So yeah, that would be my uh, advice, is commodities. That being said, I have no idea how any commodities are trading right now, but I think just as a as a area of things to invest in, I think it's more interesting than a lot of other things. I would have never thought to advise that. I mean, I do I do know that wood right now is really high. Like wood is something Yeah, like lumber. Is, yeah, wood and lumber are very expensive. And then also just gold because of the scarcity. You know, I think yep. things like that, even though you have to invest a lot of money to get started, I think they have a lot of value. Like the last couple of years, there were a lot of rising prices for lumber, copper, steel, gold. I think silver also for a time. Uranium was another big one. I think uranium was one of the more fun things to invest in because, I mean, uranium is just cool. Radioactivity is cool. It's interesting. It's neat. <laughs> so, like, trying to figure out, like, who is the best at uranium mining? It's a fun little rabbit hole to go down, in my opinion. But you don't really get the kind of same weird kind of stuff with uh, tech. I mean, you do, but it's not the same. With tech, it's very much like people trying to pioneer new things. With commodities, it's just who is the most efficient <laughs> at doing something that we've already been doing for a very long time. Well, with uh, things like NFTs and Ethereum and Bitcoin really trending down here lately, at least they've been losing a lot of value. Do you see any? Do you see a reason for people to buy that stuff, or do you think it's going to go back up? That stuff is in crypto. Yeah, cryptocurrency or NFTs, any kind of digital currency. I think crypto is... 
I feel 50-50 about it. I have a very love-hate relationship with crypto. Because on one hand, I think the technology behind crypto is really, really cool. On the other hand, all we've seen from crypto, not all we've seen, but so much of what we've seen from crypto for the last five years has just been rug pull after rug pull, scam after scam, and hack after hack. And it's just not a space that I personally feel comfortable putting my money into. But at the same time... It's like one of those things where it's very much still in its early stages, despite despite the fact that like Bitcoin has been around for a decade or so now or more. Uh, I think it's still in its fledgling state as a technology and especially as something to be regulated and watched. But at this, like it, somebody's got to take that step, you know. It, yeah. We don't just get a perfect system for it outright. It kind of takes these growing pains, like what we're seeing, and I guess that's. The optimistic way, I think, of thinking about it is that everything that we've seen so far is just a really terrible growing pain sometimes. <laughs> so I I have hope for it in the future, but I am not... I would never say conclusively that I think crypto is going to go back up. For all we know, it could crash and burn and everything could be zero next week. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> At the same time, everything could be back to record levels next week. And again, I wouldn't be surprised. It's... it's so volatile and so unpredictable and so much of what moves crypto markets happens behind the scenes and we don't see it until it's already hit the market and we've seen the after effects of those actions when hedge funds dump money we don't see it until the graph moves up or down <laughs> that kind of deal i think if i were to make and again don't take this advice because i'm not a financial advisor but if somebody came to me and said i am someone with just a very small amount of money to invest in something and i want to buy something that's cheap to buy now but hopefully valuable later i would say you know start with something like comics you know if there's a brand new line or a brand new comic that's out buy the very first issue and keep it sealed that's a very good first recommendation yeah, we haven't even comics mentioned are, comics, comics up until this point, but comics are probably like the tried and true standard of all collector's items, if you really think about it. And it's cool, too, because right now comics aren't that popular. I mean, they are, but it's kind of like a, a subculture that are yeah. really into it, and they're not spending thousands and millions of dollars on I them. I feel like, like manga is more popular right now than Western-style comics, except for maybe Marvel and DC's resurgence now. But we'll yeah, see. Like, I, I would say just find the very first print of whatever you can or whatever is intriguing to you and don't open it. And then any kind of trading card game that's brand new, like something coming out next year, buy the very first booster box, don't open it, put it in your closet. That would be my advice. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's the way to do it. You never know what will happen to it down the line. And if you're not going to do anything else with it, like, why not just hold on to it and see? Yeah. If but nothing comics, happens comics to it, is... like. You can comics open it later. Really nice it. because <laughs> you're only spending like four bucks, right? So even if it tanks, like you only lost four bucks. Yep, I like that idea a lot. Like some people, uh, myself included, are the kind of people who very much think I'm not going to do something unless I do it to the extreme. <laughs> or the other way of putting it, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. That's typically how I <laughs> do things. So that's why I like to go balls to the wall sometimes and just you know, throw a hundred bucks in Dogecoin and see what happens. But I think I've learned my lesson with that kind of recklessness. I don't really do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. I would definitely say go for the comic book over the Dogecoin or something analogous to that any day. Yeah, as long as it's something that you like and something that you find intriguing and entertaining. Like, I mean, like Brayden said earlier, 
buy two copies of it. Get one to open and read and enjoy, and then buy a copy to leave sealed. Because, I mean, that's kind of the point is you're collecting something that you think is cool. Yeah, at the end of the day, collecting doesn't have to be a hobby in and of itself, I don't think. It can be like a catalyst for launching off into other hobbies. Mm-hmm. Like with investing, it's it can be a learning point for learning how the economy works or learning how different industries work or learning what these companies do. With comic books, like maybe you're not a comic book fan when you start to collect these things, but maybe you read one one day and you're like, oh, wow, okay, comics are sweet. <laughs> Suddenly you're a comic <laughs> book fan. Like I've make a hobby out of collecting but make a hobby out of what you're collecting too i think is the way to think about it what would you say um if you were to go back and look at one investment you made that maybe you weren't expecting to be a really good investment but sort of turned really well for you what would that particular thing be what comes to mind uh there was talk like a couple years ago it was just rumors of the Senate legalizing uh, marijuana nationwide. So my roommate and I took like a hundred bucks each and we just bought this random like 90 cent weed stock that was on the New York Stock Exchange, like a Canadian company. We are like, eh, we'll just see if uh, the news stories about this make people start buying this to see if the price goes up. And we ended up making like a couple hundred bucks off of it each. It was like a 300% return or something like that that we got in less than a week. And it was just because we picked the right news cycle to buy it. And <laughs> suddenly yeah. the more talk there was of this stuff getting legalized, the higher the stock price went, we were like, okay, let's bank it. <laughs> we sold yeah. it and boom, money. It was a happy little coincidence. There's absolutely no research done behind it at all. It was just a hunch and it paid off. <laughs> I think for me, the thing that comes to mind is just because I love collecting. And this was kind of like right during the heat of COVID when everybody, you know, you could go to a Walmart or Target, there would be no trading cards. They would all be just gone. So there was a Pokemon set out at the time called Champion's Path. And I was able to get a couple of the Elite Trainer boxes on Amazon for maybe about 100 bucks. Uh, I got like three boxes of it, which wasn't that was about 200 percent of what it cost retail. So I wasn't too upset. Um, but I got one of the Secret Rare Charizard cards. I got it graded. It came back a Gym Mint 10. So, you know, for like my little $200 investment, I had an $1,800 card. So that, that's a nice profit. <laughs> the profit margin is strong on that one. <laughs> and then, you know, six months later, they were only worth like what I paid for it anyway. <laughs> that's how it goes. Yep. That's the important lesson with all forms of investing, I think. At the end of the day, I don't invest what I'm not willing to lose. Yeah. Minus my retirement through work, because I don't really have a choice about that. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, I think for our age group, we're pretty much doomed when it comes to like Social Security and retirement. There's not going to be anything there. Yeah, I'm going to trust my educated gambling or maybe lack thereof educated gambling <laughs> on the stock market. <laughs> I really, really wish I were though. good at that. I know that a lot of people do stocks and stock market, and I, I just feel like there's a lot of research that's required to do it well. I did do it for a while, and that's honestly why I haven't done it much in the last year. I have a couple things in my portfolio that I really just haven't even touched, haven't watched, haven't looked at in the last eight to ten months, probably. <laughs> it is a lot of work trying to keep up on them all and what they're all doing, what their stock prices are doing. And I think... Uh, there are two different kinds of investing philosophies. I mean, there's short-term and there's long-term. And I used to be a short-term investor. I have 
no longer a short-term investor because of the amount of work required to do it. I'm very much a long-term investor now. Pretty much everything in my portfolio at this point, I'm not going to touch for five to ten years, maybe. I'm just going to see where they go unless it's a crisis situation and I need to go liquidate everything. But uh, I don't expect that to happen. I'm just going to sit and ride the wave, the gradual wave for the next five years instead of trying to ride little tiny fluctuations, borderline day trading. It's stressful. (laughs) It's a lot of work. (laughs) If you could, if you could go back, let's say twenty, thirty years, and have unlimited cash funds for investment, and you have the knowledge that you have now at that time period, but you're only allowed to invest in one thing. It could be any one stock, any one franchise, any one material item. What would you buy? If I had the knowledge that I have right now, yep, I probably would have done GameStop and sold it at its peak. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Like I, mean, if I knew what was going to happen. Made, people made a lot of money on GameStop. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. I lost money on GameStop. I made money on AMC, though, at the same time. I mean, it more than balanced <laughs> out. So I came out in the green still. But yeah, if I knew what I knew now, I would have rode the GameStop way for sure. I feel like, I feel like maybe it's all a percentage game. Like a percentage <laughs> game. I, w- I would go back to like when the very first Walking Dead comic was printed. And I would buy like a hundred of those for four dollars a piece. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. Or maybe I would buy a Blue Eyes White Dragon. There you go. You could get some first edition <laughs> Blue Eyes, get them all graded ten, and just put them in a big box, and you'd be like set for life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or an old like Lord of the Rings digital collector's box set, still in its original wrapper. That would be another good one. Yeah. I mean, especially now with the Prime series, that would probably be pretty valuable. Yeah, or uh, maybe the uh, Golden Case Original Legend of Zelda NES cartridge. Oh yeah, that's, that's pretty crazy. I've seen um, NES cartridges are apparently shooting up in a lot of places right now, and Atari cartridges, for whatever reason, the two of them are in higher than usual demand from what I saw. I don't I know think, if there's any truth to that, but <laughs> it I think was just a think was kind of the pioneer of like video games becoming really valuable because a lot of people were uh, grading like Super Mario 64 and Ocarina um, and DK like 64, a bunch of those games. But now, like you said, uh, Super NES and Atari and NES, a lot of those cartridges are being graded and sold and they're really expensive. Yeah, it seems almost like there's a novelty aspect to it now. It used to be that it was all just the classic games that had all the value, and now people are like, I want an ROB just to have an ROB. <laughs> or I want a zapper gun just because. <laughs> yeah, I, it's it's very strange being 28 and understanding that you know the, the kids, I mean, all the stuff that I loved as a kid, now we all have careers and we have like a little bit of money, and now people are just rebuying it and then paying like, a thousand percent increase (laughs) we're all chasing the dragon that was our childhood that's how i feel about (laughs) it (laughs) it's it's bizarre um that's the common theme for adults in 2022 it seems none of us want to be here (laughs) we all i mean everything's being remade too that's the other big thing it's like everything that you knew as a child if you knew the lion king there's a new lion king that's the same story but it's all like real life stuff (laughs) (laughs) yeah you're not wrong too all these rebooted franchises I'm about it, though. It feels like uh, there are parts of my childhood that I get to relive again, thanks to all these things that are coming back. Or things that have never (laughs) stopped, like Pokemon. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't know if I don't know if this is a spoiler for those listening, so spoiler warning. But uh, Ash Ketchum finally became the greatest there ever was. So that's cool. He did. He did. <laughs> I was quite happy when I saw that pop up on my Twitter feed the other day. I was like, yes. <laughs> That's the end yeah. of an era right there. A very 25 long 25 years era. in, and little 10-year-old me wanted to be the best there ever was because this stupid little kid in Pallet Town wanted to be the best. And then it never happened. And then randomly at 28, it just happens. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> yeah, you think about that. Like, that's so much of our life yeah. that Ash Ketchum was on the journey to catch them all. <laughs> yeah poor ash man he went through it he he got so close so many times and nintendo was like all right let's let's retire yeah talk about a character arc man like he basically gave the simpsons a run for their money just <laughs> trying to catch pokemon all on his own so before we before we kind of conclude um i have a little game that i like to play with my guests and i don't know if you've kind of seen this on any of the other episodes but what i like to do i have a series of 10 questions and these are all based on James, Lipta, James Lipton's uh, Inside the Actor Studio from the 90s. I've edited them for content, but 10 questions. And so what I want you to do is kind of answer off the top of your head, first thing that comes to mind, and we'll all be very entertained by it. All right, let's do it. So uh, what is your favorite word? My favorite word? Ooh. Yep. Onomatopoeia. Oh, that's a good one. I've been waiting for someone to give me that. <laughs> <laughs> it just rolls what's off your, the tongue. What's your least favorite word? Ooh, um, that's a tough one. Probably adjunct. Ooh, that's kind of hard to say. Yeah. Like an adjunct professor? I don't like that word. <laughs> it's too choppy. What excites you? Oh, uh, bass. <laughs> bass excites me. Uh, what upsets you? Um, people not refilling the Brita filter. Okay. Like, if yeah, you empty a Brita gonna... filter, you should refill it. <laughs> That's a pet peeve of mine. That upsets me. Not, like, genuinely say, uh... upsets me, but it's a pet peeve. I thought you were going to say lack of bass, but that works. <laughs> <laughs> Treble. <laughs> um, what sound or noise do you love? You can kind of go with the same answer if you want. Oh, what sound or noise? Um, I can't make it with my mouth, but the sound of like wet sand shifting beneath your feet. Okay. Like beach sand, very yeah. clumpy beach sand. If you can imagine just like crunching your toes together in that, I like that sound a lot. It's a nice one. What sound or noise do you hate? Uh, glass on a chalkboard, oh, or yeah. just chalk scratching on a chalkboard whatever the scratching noise is coming from but i think glass is very bad on a chalkboard they're just very harsh sounds what motivates you to act every day when you wake up my cat oh that's cute (laughs) i say that in like a heartfelt way but also because he's usually up earlier than me and he wants water (laughs) he He drinks a lot from the tub and he begs me at like six in the morning every morning goodness gracious <laughs> so yeah literally and figuratively my cat he's like desperate for water <laughs> he has three water bowls and he still prefers the tub he's a fickle um, what, little boy what profession other than your own would you like to attempt Ooh, um <laughs> okay we'll go with music producer 
Okay. Uh, you sounds like you thought of something else and you just veered away. I've thought of a couple different things for that answer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what profession would you not like to do? Oh, uh... Manager in anything. <laughs> I was a stage manager for a while, and that was about the extent of what I could do, I think, management-wise. I don't like telling other people what to do. And last but not least, my personal favorite. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? What's up? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> <laughs> so you want him to be cool like you. That's when I know it's real, yeah. Oh goodness! Well, if it seems if it seems too far off from that, it won't feel real. It'll feel staged. <laughs> I definitely appreciate your time. I think it was a great conversation. I enjoyed all the topics that we went through. Um, I definitely feel like I learned a lot about you, which was a lot of fun. So I'm going to let you have the final word. So if you want to shout yourself out in any way, anything you want to say to the viewers slash listeners, um, and then we'll kind of wrap from there. Um. You can find me on SoundCloud and on Twitter. My username is BirdieBot with a U B U R D Y B O T, all lowercase, all one word. But that being said, we'll see if Twitter is still alive in a week. So I might be a little hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're like number infinite of people who shout themselves out right before Twitter dies. <laughs> yup. I've been lamenting the loss of our website all day. We'll see where we are in a week. Hopefully, it's still alive. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, with that, um, we're going to kind of cut there. And again, I appreciate your time. Have a lot of fun. Yup. Yup. This has been fun.